Chapter Thirteen of the Turmoil. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit www.librivox.org. Recording by Jonathan Burchard, May two thousand nine. The Turmoil, Volume One of the Growth Trilogy, by Booth Tarkington, Chapter Thirteen. Bibbs went home pondering. He did not understand why Sybil had laughed. The laughter itself had been spontaneous and beyond suspicion, but it seemed to him that she had only affected the effort to suppress it, and that she wished it to be significant. Significant of what? And why had she wished to impress upon him the fact of her overwhelming amusement? He found no answer, but she had succeeded in disturbing him, and he wished that he had not encountered her. At home, uncles, aunts, and cousins from out of town were wandering about the house, several mournfully admiring the Bay of Naples, and others occupied with the moor and the plumbing, while they waited for trains. Edith and her mother had retired to some upper fastness, but Bibbs interviewed Jackson and had the various groups of relatives summoned to the dining-room for food. One great-uncle, old Gideon Sheridan from Boonville, could not be found, and Bibbs went in search of him. He ransacked the house, discovering the missing antique at last by accident. Passing his father's closed door on tiptoe, Bibbs heard a murmurous sound and paused to listen. The sound proved to be a quavering and rickety voice, monotonously bleeding. "'The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. We got to remember that. We got to remember that. I'm a-gettin' along, James, I'm a-gettin' along, and I've seen a many of em go.' Two daughters and a son the Lord give me, and he has taken all away. For the Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Remember the words of Bildad the Shuhite, James. Bildad the Shuhite says, He shall have neither son nor nephew among his people, nor any remaining in his dwellings. Bildad the Shuhite. Bibbs opened the door softly. His father was lying upon the bed, in his underclothes, face downward, and Uncle Gideon sat nearby, swinging backward and forward in a rocking-chair, stroking his long white beard and gazing at the ceiling as he talked. Bibbs beckoned to him urgently, but Uncle Gideon paid no attention. Bildad the Shuhite spake, and his says, If thy children have sinned against him, and he have cast them away, there was a muffled explosion beneath the floor, and the windows rattled. The figure lying face downward on the bed did not move, but Uncle Gideon leaped from his chair, "'My God!' he cried. "'What's that?' There came a second explosion, and Uncle Gideon ran out into the hall. Bibbs went to the head of the great staircase, and, looking down, discovered the source of the disturbance. Gideon's grandson, a boy of fourteen, had brought his camera to the funeral and was taking flashlights of the moor. Uncle Gideon, reassured by Bibbs' explanation, would have returned to finish his quotation from Bildad the Shuhite, but Bibbs detained him, and after a little argument persuaded him to descend to the dining-room, whither Bibbs followed after closing the door of his father's room. He kept his eye on Gideon after dinner, diplomatically preventing several attempts on the part of that comforted to reascend the stairs, and it was a relief to Bibb when George announced that an automobile was waiting to convey the ancient man and his grandson to their train. They were the last to leave, and when they had gone, Bibbs went sighing to his own room. He stretched himself wearily upon the bed, but presently rose, went to the window, and looked for a long time at the darkened house where Mary Vertrees lived. 
Then he opened his trunk, took therefrom a small notebook half filled with fragmentary scribblings, and began to write. Laughter after a funeral. In this reaction, people will laugh at anything and at nothing. The band plays a dirge on the way to the cemetery, but when it turns back, and the morning carriages are out of hearing, it strikes up, Dark Town is out tonight. That is natural, but there are women whose laughter is like the wearing of whips. Why is it that certain kinds of laughter seem to spoil something hidden away from the laughers? If they do not know of it, and have never seen it, how can their laughter hurt it? Yet it does. Beauty is not out of place among gravestones. It is not out of place anywhere. But a woman who has been betrothed to a man would not look beautiful at his funeral. A woman might look beautiful, though, at the funeral of a man she had known and liked. And in that case, too, she would probably not want to talk if she drove home from the cemetery with his brother. Nor would she want the brother to talk. Silence is usually either stupid or timid. But for a man who stammers if he tries to talk fast, and drawls so slowly when he doesn't stammer, that nobody has time to listen to him, silence is advisable. Nevertheless, too much silence is open to suspicion. It may be reticence, or it may be a vacuum. It may be dignity, or it may be false teeth. Sometimes an imperceptible odor will become perceptible in a small enclosure, such as a closed carriage. The ghost of gasoline rising from a lady's glove might be sweeter to the man riding beside her than all the scents of Arcady in spring. It depends on the lady, but there are. Three miles may be three hundred miles, or it may be three feet. When it is three feet, you have not time to say a great deal before you reach the end of it. Still, it may be that one should begin to speak. No one could help wishing to stay in a world that holds some of the people that are in this world. There are some so wonderful you do not understand how the dead could die. How could they let themselves? A falling building does not care who falls with it. It does not choose who shall be upon its roof and who shall not. Silence can be golden, yes. But perhaps if a woman of the world should find herself by accident sitting beside a man for the length of time it must necessarily take two slow old horses to jog three miles, she might expect that man to say something of some sort. Even if she thought him a feeble hypochondriac, even if she had heard from others that he was a disappointment to his own people, even if she had seen for herself that he was a useless and irritating encumbrance everywhere, she might expect him at least to speak. She might expect him to open his mouth and try to make sounds, if he only barked, if he did not even try, but sat every step of the way as dumb as a frozen fish. She might think him a frozen fish, and she might be right. She might be right if she thought him about as pleasant a companion as... as Bildad the Shoehite. Bibbs closed his notebook, replacing it in his trunk. Then, after a period of melancholy contemplation, he undressed, put on a dressing gown and slippers, and went softly out into the hall, to his father's door. Upon the floor was a tray which Bibbs had sent George earlier in the evening to place upon a table in Sheridan's room. But the food was untouched. Bibbs stood listening outside the door for several minutes. There came no sound from within, and he went back to his own room and to bed. In the morning he woke to a state of being hitherto unknown in his experience. Sometimes in the process of waking there is a little pause. Sleep has gone, but coherent thought has not begun. It is a curious half-void, a glimpse of aphasia, and although the person experiencing it may not know for that instant his own name or age or sex, he may be acutely conscious of depression or elation. It is the moment, as we say, before we remember 
and for the first time in Bibbs's life it came to him bringing a vague happiness. He woke to a sense of new riches. He had the feeling of a boy waking to a birthday. But when the next moment brought him his memory, he found nothing that could explain his exhilaration. On the contrary, under the circumstances it seemed grotesquely unwarranted. However, it was a brief visitation and was gone before he had finished dressing. It left a little trail, the pleased recollection of it and the puzzle of it, which remained unsolved. And in fact, waking happily in the morning is not usually the result of a drive home from a funeral. No wonder the sequence evaded Bibbs Sheridan. His father had gone when he came downstairs. Went on down to office just same, Jackson informed him. Came sat breakfast table all by himself, eat nothing. George bring nice breakfast, but didn't eat a thing. Yes, sir, went on downtown, yes, same as he used to do. Yes, sir, I reckon putty much everything going on same as it used to do. It struck Bibbs that Jackson was right. The day passed as other days had passed. Mrs. Sheridan and Edith were in black, and Mrs. Sheridan cried a little, now and then, but no other external difference was to be seen. Edith was quiet, but not noticeably depressed, and at lunch proved herself able to argue with her mother upon the propriety of receiving calls in the earliest stages of mourning. Lunch was as usual, for Jim and his father had always lunched downtown, and the afternoon was as usual. Bibbs went for his drive, and his mother went with him, as she sometimes did when the weather was pleasant. Altogether, the usualness of things was rather startling to Bibbs. During the drive, Mrs. Sheridan talked fragmentarily of Jim's childhood. "'But you wouldn't remember about that,' she said, after narrating an episode. "'You were too little. He was always a good boy, just like that, and he'd save whatever Papa gave him and put it in the bank. I reckon it'll just about kill your father to put somebody in his place as president of the realty company, Bibbs. I know he can't move Roscoe over.' He told me last week he'd already put as much on Roscoe as any one man could handle and not go crazy. Oh, it's a pity. She stopped to wipe her eyes. It's a pity you didn't run more with Jim Bibbs and kind of pick up his ways. Think what it'd mean to Papa now. You never did run with either Roscoe or Jim any, even before you got sick. Of course, you were younger, but it always did seem queer, and you three being brothers like that. I don't believe I ever saw you and Jim sit down together for a good talk in my life. Mother, I've been away so long, Bibbs returned gently, and since I came home I— Oh, I ain't reproaching you, Bibbs, she said. Jim ain't been home much of an evening since you got back, and what with his work and callin' and goin' to the theatre and places, and often not even at the house for dinner. Right the evening before he got hurt, he had his dinner at some miserable restaurant down by the pump works. He was so set on overseeing the night work, and getting everything finished up right to the minute he told Papa he would. I reckon you might have put in more time with Jim if there'd been more opportunity, Bibbs. I expect you feel almost as if you scarcely knew him right well. I suppose I really didn't, Mother. He was busy, you see, and I hadn't much to say about the things that interested him, because I don't know much about them. It's a pity, oh, it's a pity, she moaned, and you'll have to learn to know about him now, Bibbs. I haven't said much to you because I felt it was all between your father and you, but I honestly do believe it will just kill him if he has to have any more trouble on top of all this. You mustn't let him, Bibbs, you mustn't. You don't know how he's grieved over you, and now he can't stand any more. He just can't. Whatever he says for you to do, you do it, Bibbs. You do it. I want you to promise me you will. I would if I could, he said sorrowfully. No, no, why can't you, she cried. 
clutching his arm. "He wants you to go back to the machine shop and and like it," said Bibbs. "Yes, that's it. To go in a cheerful spirit. Doctor Gurney said it wouldn't hurt you if you went in a cheerful spirit. The doctor said that himself, Bibbs. So why can't you do it? Well, can't you do that much for your father? You ought to think what he's done for you." You got a beautiful house to live in, you got automobiles to ride in, you got fur coats and warm clothes, you've been taken care of all your life, and you don't know how he worked for the money to give all those things to you. You don't dream what he had to go through and what he risked when we were starting out in life, and you never will know. And now this blow has fallen on him out of a clear sky, and you make it out to be a hardship to do like he wants you to. And all on earth he asks is for you to go back to the work in a cheerful spirit, so it won't hurt you. That's all he asks. Look, Bibbs, we're getting back near home, but before we get there, I want you to promise me that you'll do what he asks you to. Promise me. In her earnestness, she cleared away her black veil that she might see him better, and it blew out on the smoky wind. He readjusted it for her before he spoke. I'll go back in as cheerful spirit as I can, mother, he said. There, she exclaimed, satisfied. That's a good boy. That's all I wanted you to say. Don't give me any credit, he said ruefully. There isn't anything else for me to do. Now don't begin talking that way. No, no, he soothed her. We'll have to begin to make the spirit a cheerful one. We may. They were turning into their own driveway as he spoke, and he glanced at the house next door. Mary Vertrees was visible in the twilight, standing upon the front steps bareheaded, the door open behind her. She bowed gravely. "'We may what?' asked Mrs. Sheridan, with a slight impatience. "'What is it, Mother? You said, we may, and didn't finish what you were saying.' "'Did I?' said Bibbs blankly. "'Well, what were we saying?' "'Of all the queer boys,' she cried. "'You always were, always. You haven't forgot what you just promised me, have you?' "'No,' he answered, as the car stopped. No, the spirit will be as cheerful as the flesh will let it, mother. It won't do to behave like— His voice was low, and in her movement, to descend from the car, she failed to hear his final words. Behave like who, Bibbs? Nothing. But she was fretful in her grief. You said it wouldn't do to behave like somebody. Behave like who? It was just nonsense, he explained, turning to go in. An obscure person I don't think much of lately. "'Behave like who?' she repeated, and upon his yielding to her petulant insistence, she made up her mind that the only thing to do was to tell Dr. Gurney about it. "'Like Bildad the Shoe Height,' was what Bibbs said. End of chapter 13